Hello, and welcome to Edible Ocean with Professor Tony Winson. I'm Edith Wilson, Tony's audio and production assistant. In this episode two, we are privileged to be talking with Alana Mitchell, who started her career as a journalist for several of Canada's major newspapers with a focus on environmental issues, winning awards along the way for her writing. She left daily journalism after 17 years to focus on writing popular science books and articles and even plays. One of her several books is titled Seasick and deals with the major issues facing our planet's oceans and makes these readily understandable for a general audience. It has had considerable impact and has won the U.S.-based Grantham Prize awarded for journalists covering significant environment issues. So here, without any further ado, we have Professor Tony Winson interviewing Canadian science journalist Alana Mitchell. Well, thank you for uh, agreeing to be on our podcast. Your book has warned us that what you refer to as global ocean change is actually more important than atmospheric climate change, given that seven-tenths of the Earth's surface consists of oceans, and that the oceans, you argue, contain the switch of life, uh, and that that switch can be switched off. So, I'm wondering if we could just begin by you giving us some background into how you became interested in pursuing your investigation into the problems facing the planet's oceans, and just maybe a bit about just how you went about it. Sure. I mean, it's uh, it's it's a long love affair, actually, uh, with the ocean. I was I was at the Globe and Mail as a, as a reporter, and I was writing a lot of stories. This was, you know many years ago now i was writing a lot of stories about climate which is a huge issue and there's i, I certainly don't mean to uh in any of my writing diminish the 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 importance the urgency of the changes to the climate i think what i'm the point i'm making in the book is simply that the carbon load in the atmosphere is also having an effect on the global ocean and is is you know setting us up for even greater catastrophe than we knew uh, when we just than we know about when we're just focusing on the on the atmosphere so that's sort of the, the larger point that I'm, I'm trying to make but uh, I mean effectively I was in um, I was working at the Globe and Mail and all sorts of stories kept coming across my desk about the ocean and that the ocean was in trouble and I was writing a lot about biodiversity on land about climate disruption and and all those kinds of issues and I, I just didn't have any understanding of what was going on in the ocean and so I set off to try to figure it out and the way I did that the way I try to do that in most of my research is to speak with the scientists who are who are actually doing the research and so I just launched into this this whole uh, you know several years of journeys I think it was 13 journeys over three years in mainly in ships in different parts of the global ocean with with scientists well, that sounds like a very exciting odyssey that you were on. So where did you go? Well, I went to, I started off in Panama uh, going to see a coral spawning with a scientist named, uh, she's a, a, a biologist, marine biologist named Nancy Knowlton. And she had done, she was part of a, a group that was doing long-term studies of corals in, in uh, Panama. And I went to just to try to figure out what was going on with with uh, corals. And so we, we saw a coral spawning, she and I together, and with along with a whole bunch of other scientists who had gathered from all over the world we were looking at a batch of corals that had been studied over many years and we were trying to figure out how that 
coral reef was doing. It was a, it was a year of, of intense um, bleaching and intense heat in the ocean, and the the corals were struggling. And it was sort of my first glimpse of the fact that there were there are huge uh, systemic issues happening with the ocean. Yes, um, so that was one of your places uh, that you visited, one of these oceanographic centers, and you you visited a number of others, and I believe you found that the experts around the world were, were not really aware of what the other scientists and other places uh, were doing. Is that the case? That that is the case. I was I was really surprised by this. I I wasn't sure where the research was on the ocean. I just didn't really understand uh, how severed different phases, different different disciplines looking at the oceans were. I didn't realize how how severed they were from each other, or how siloed, I guess maybe. And so I would go from research ship to research ship, and I would. And these were all with very, very, very eminent, uh, well-published uh, scientists I was doing these these trips with. And I would go from one ship to the next, and I would tell the new group, oh, here's what I found. And the new, the new group of scientists would say, oh, really? And, and so it was a process for me of gathering all of this information that was just emerging at the scientific level. So there's a whole bunch of information that was that had not uh, coalesced among the scientific community. It, it was there, there were bits and pieces of it happening on research vessels all over the world. And, and I guess one of the things that I tried to do was to take a, a, an overview of it to try to put some of these pieces of the puzzle together that's what my book seasick did and it was it was but it was sort of the early stages of scientific understanding of some of the issues that were going on in the ocean yeah it just seems you came along at the right time then <laughs> i was a little early I'd waited a couple more years, the science would have been, you know, more gelled, I think. Um, but and it's become so much more interesting. Uh, to, to, you know, it's become interesting to watch how that information has has gelled in the years since that book came out. CISA uh, came out in 2009, 2010, and uh, so you know, 12, 13 years ago. And and in the, in the meantime, there's just been a tremendous outpouring of research, a, a real. Um, I mean, it's been explosive, the amount of research that scientists have done on the ocean and the effects of carbon in the atmosphere on the ocean and, and putting together all of those, um, you know, knitting it all together into a fabric that is comprehensible. It's, it's, it's been just, you know, mind-boggling to watch it unfold. Well, before we get into what some of these big issues are, um, do you think that that coalescing of research is, um, you know, reaching the general public in terms of the implications of it yet, or are we still early in the process of that? You know, it's 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 hard for me to judge. I, I don't I don't think I have a good answer for this. But what I can tell you is that I think there's there's more public information, more public knowledge about what's going on with the ocean. But I think it's still quite uh, limited. Um, so, and the, and the reason I'm, I'm drawing this conclusion is that I've been traveling around the world for the last eight years with a play that I also wrote based on my book, Seasick, and presenting it to, to, to audiences. And what I'm discovering is that you know, there's more knowledge and more concern about the urgency of the carbon load in the atmosphere than there was when I began doing this. But 
people are still surprised by the information in the play, which is, of course, based on the book. Yeah, that's interesting to know. Could you just give us a, a very quick overview of what the biggest issues facing the marine environments are worldwide? And then maybe we can get a little more into into the weeds about some of them. Well, the, the material that I focus on in the book um, found the most important about the research that I did, partly because it hadn't you know, been been discussed that much in the scientific literature at that time and in the public domain, is that you know, we have this this quite extensive knowledge now about how the carbon load in the atmosphere is disrupting climate, how it's melting the ice caps, raising sea level. You know, we we know about floods and and wildfires and heat domes and all that all that stuff that is is a result of the carb the extra carbon load in the atmosphere. But what people aren't as aware of is is the fact that that the ocean is absorbing a great deal of the uh, of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, so it soaks up roughly a third of it, and that the ocean is like a sponge for some of the extra heat that is held against the body of the planet by this extra carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So, the ocean has is for years scientists thought, oh, the ocean is our buffer; it's absorbing some of the carbon dioxide gas, and it's absorbing, you know, eighty to ninety percent of the extra heat that is held against the body of the planet, and that's saving us from worse climate disruption. What they now realize is that the ocean itself, which they once thought was immutable, you know, it is so vast that it, it couldn't be changed. Now scientists are realizing that the ocean itself is changing. So the fundamental chemistry of the ocean is changing as a result of the carbon load in the atmosphere. And, and that takes, you know, the form of the ocean becoming what they what scientists call warm breathless and sour so it's absorbing some of that extra a lot of that extra heat almost all of it it's uh, losing some of its dissolved oxygen and it is also becoming uh, becoming more acidic and that those three things together are considered i mean scientists again they talk about them this is the the toxic cocktail of the ocean so each one is bad on its own but together they are they are worse than the sum of their parts you mentioned um your work with uh, um people studying um corals and coral reefs the bleaching of corals um what other kind of impacts uh were you looking at in the different places you visited um, well, I was looking when I went to um, I, I did some interviews with scientists in Plymouth. So Plymouth is, is just a place where they have a tremendous amount of uh, you know they they do a lot of marine biology there and they have for a long time. And so there I was looking at plankton uh, and I was also looking at the movement of, of species um, because of the the heat in the ocean. And this is one of the really fascinating phenomena that's happening is that is that species in the ocean are uh, fleeing the heat, and so they are moving away from the continents and away from the equator toward cooler water. But the thing is that they're moving at different speeds and at different times, and they're reconfiguring themselves in different communities as the as they make these great migrations across the ocean because of the heat. They become refugees from the heat, you could say. And, and this is this is causing a whole bunch of mismatches in the ocean when it comes to food, when it comes to when creatures. Uh, need food when they can find food when they are food all of that stuff is is shifting and and this is one of the really fascinating elements of of uh, studying the ocean at the moment is to try to figure out exactly where these creatures are going 
Yes, I mean, we've heard uh, about this shifting of um, species in the Canadian-American context. For instance, uh, we're talking about lobsters uh, moving north. Uh, we're talking about uh, the right whales that uh, never used to, yes, never used to go into the Gulf of St. Lawrence and now are doing so more in search of food um, and, and running into a lot of problems with uh, you know, getting caught up in um, some of the fishing gear and so on. Uh, and, and, yeah, it's incredible, this, this massive movement of species that seems to be happening um, in, in different places in the globe, right? And, and the other part of that, that that is so fascinating is that some creatures still, like, say, some of the phytoplankton still bloom um because they're responding to the amount of daylight in you know that they're that they're perceiving and that and that hasn't changed but some are blooming in response to temperature so and the temperature is changing and so there's again this mismatch in when things are uh, available to be food sources um, or are capable of getting food these subtle changes that are that are um, they're changing what's what's out there in the food web really interesting. Yes, and I suppose the, one of the big, I mean, I'm sure this has happened over eons of time as well, but it's happening so rapidly right now that it may be making it Im- impossible for some species to adapt and threatening their existence. Well, that's the thing. It's just it's, the pace of this is what is the thing that is, I think, the hardest for us as humans to, to grasp is just that, you know, that the Earth system doesn't like to change this fast. It's not used to it. <laughs> and and creatures aren't, aren't species are not uh, really set up to adapt as quickly as they're being asked to adapt at this moment. Plankton, maybe they're okay. You know, they, they, they reproduce so quickly, but, but marine mammals just can't adapt as quickly as, you know, as they're being, as they're, as the, the planet is now demanding of them because the conditions are changing. So when I do this play that I do, I, I sort of, put some of the material into this little chart that I write on a blackboard. So right in the middle of the play, I just turn my back on the audience and I start writing on a blackboard. And what I'm doing is describing time, like the, 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 the age of our planet and the, the incredible, cause our planet is 4.6 billion years old. And, you know, our species has only been around for about 300,000 years. And we started burning fossil fuels about 272 years ago. So call it 1750 at the beginning of the industrial revolution. And in those 272 years, we have changed the whole balance of the planet. We've changed all these, some of the fundamental chemistry that describes our ocean and our atmosphere. And it's, it's incredible incredibly swift. I mean, if you look back to some of the the mass extinctions that have happened in our planet's history, those uh, those huge infusions of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere that triggered some of the previous mass extinctions happened over the course of tens or hundreds of thousands of years. We're doing it in the space of you know a couple of hundred years. Uh, it's it's incredibly swift and much of that carbon extra carbon load that is in our atmosphere today has happened i mean about more than half of it has happened since i was a teenager so this is within a single human's lifetime we're making these extreme changes to uh, to what's going on yes it's, uh, it's a very important point is the, is the rapidity the speed of with which we're changing the climate 
Uh, and climate deniers have talked about the Earth's climate and temperatures and so on going up and down for a long period of time. This is nothing new, they've said. But, of course, that misses the whole point that there's never been this kind of rapid increase um, that we're seeing today. And especially in the last few decades, it's uh, it's an exponential increase, isn't it? Well, it, it's it's not exponential in the last decade, but it's 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 extremely extremely rapid in the last fifty years, you could say. The thing the thing is, if you look back to the previous, so there've been five mass extinctions. This fascinates me. So <laughs> stop me if I'm getting dull. But in the previous five mass extinctions, the trigger in, um, to the change has been a change in the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that has changed the chemistry of the ocean. That's the the, the fundamental mechanism so the biggest of them all was the permian extinction which happened about 250 million years ago so that was the one they call the great dying in the scientific literature because 95 percent of the species on the planet went extinct and the, the the trigger for that mass extinction was the formation of the siberian traps mount mountains so the, this was a huge volcanic a series of volcanic eruptions that happened really really swiftly put all this carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and you know, caused triggered this mass extinction. Today, we're putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere at about a hundred times faster than the volcanoes that caused the Permian extinction. And as far as scientists can tell, and it's you know, they, they, they've only been able to go back about say five hundred million years, but in the span of time that we've that, you know we we are able to capture, this is by far the fastest. Today, what we're doing with our atmosphere is by far the fastest uh, that they've been able to track. So we're putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere faster than at any other time of the planet's history. It's it's stunning, actually. When you think of the cataclysmic changes that our planet has been through and, uh, and that, that our little species is able to affect the fundamental chemistry of the planet, you know, the planet's life support systems in these ways in such a short time, it's just amazing. I think that's one of the reasons it's so hard to grasp. It's it's just it's hard to grasp that we really are having this massive effect on on the life support systems of our planet. Yeah, that's very well put. Thanks for for uh, getting into that a little bit. Um, well, I'm just one of the um, the issues that you did explore in CSIC and I found really fascinating reading it and, and so disturbing was the uh, the issue of dead zones in the ocean. And you were, you were on a, a vessel that was exploring the oxygen content and other things in the Gulf of Mexico. Could you, could you give a little bit of uh, dis, uh, background in, into what was found in, on that expedition? Dead zones are, the, are a phenomenon that is relatively... The extent of dead zones that we've got now is, is relatively recent. Uh, there are, at this moment, more than 500 in coastal waters around the world. Um, and so that's a doubling from what it was about 15 or 20 years ago. So there's, a, there's been a big increase in these. And primarily, these are and in the Gulf of Mexico, for example, these are caused by uh, fertilizers flowing into the watershed and into the, into the ocean. Um, so you get this, this huge... Um, 
you know, you get these nitrogen and phosphorus-based fertilizers that go into the water and are food for plants, except it's not the plants up on land that they were meant for, that the farmers are, are applying them to the fields for. Instead, these are now the, the plants of the of the ocean, the phytoplankton, and they and these things just make these massive algal blooms with all this, this you know, synthetic fertilizer food in the Gulf uh, at the mouth of the Mississippi River, and they, they make these great, huge algal blooms. The algal blooms aren't food for anything so they just die and fall to the bottom of the seabed floor and that's when the second part of this whole dead zone process takes over which is the bacteria start to decompose all of these little phyto uh, all these little algae these phytoplankton and as they do that they use up both the oxygen the dissolved oxygen in the water column so in the case of the gulf of mexico from this one little spot on the seabed floor at the mouth of the mississippi river this dead zone spreads all along the coast of the gulf and in some places right up to the top of the water column so it's this big mass of water that has little or no oxygen in it and that means that creatures that live there either die or they have to move out they bug out is what the scientists call call it they, they move out of the, this this part of the water that, that has so little oxygen in it and the thing about these is that they are they are really fascinating because they are just uh, very hard to heal. Uh, the, the one in the Gulf of Mexico comes back every year, and, and you know, depending on how much water is in the watershed, how much fertilizer is in the watershed, but it never really completely goes away. And some of the some of the others, some of the other really large ones, the coastal waters, just even after the the fertilizers stop going in, they just simply life never quite reassembles in the same way in these in these parts of the world. So so that's one element of the, of the issue. But the, the other possibly more disturbing issue is that there are now several big low oxygen zones in parts of the open ocean, in parts of the, the currents that are uh, off, the, off the continental shelves that are caused not by chemicals flowing directly into the ocean, but they're, cha- but they're caused by instead changes to the ocean itself. So the algae are there, they are fed, they they you know, it's the same phenomenon that, that, that causes the dead zone, but the co- but the, the source is different. It's just water come, that wells up from below and it carries nutrients with it that feed the, the algae and then they die and these big open ocean dead zones are being formed. And so that part is caused by climate change rather than the input of, you know, chemicals into the ocean. So it's, it's one of those things that they can emerge and scientists just have a hard time knowing when or where or, or exactly, you know, what these things are going to be. It's, it's scary. Yes, I mean, uh, yeah, it was such a impactful chapter you had on dead zones. One thing I've discovered as well is, is that, uh, you know, we've heard about the massive oil spills in the, in the Gulf as sort of another threat to it. And the fact that the matter is there's actually thousands of oil wells and gas wells that have been drilled in the Gulf of Mexico, and there's pipelines all over the floor of the Gulf. It, it, it's unbelievable how industrial that huge body of water has become. Yeah, it is. It's it's just it's it's full of uh, flares. You know, you go, you're on a ship in the Gulf of Mexico at night, and there are flares all over the place. These are from the from the oil and gas wells. That that's fascinating. And so there's a lot of spillage in there already. Um, that and the thing about the spillage of um, crude oil is that it's just food again for these for for creatures. And so you get these little dead zones that are that are populating that. Uh, that whole gulf, it's really fascinating. Could you tell us anything about 
the threats to the planet that uh, could be caused by changes in ocean currents and and I'm thinking of the Gulf Stream for instance which uh, what's 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 behind that um, that is that has to do with um, with the currents slowing down so they're still they're still moving that that big current is still the Gulf Stream is still moving up into so that carries water up into the North Atlantic. And as the North Atlantic becomes fresher, so as water uh, ice melts and the water becomes fresher, the, there, there's a sort of pump that happens that is a function of heat and in some senses even gravity that pushes the water around in, in this Gulf Stream. And that, that pump is changing. And so the, the Gulf Stream is lessening in power, as I understand it. It's again, it's a symbol of the or maybe even a symptom of these really vast changes to fundamental systems on the planet just phenomenal that we that humans are actually impacting such a tremendously powerful and monumental force in the ocean but it seems that that may may be the case yeah uh, it is the case and, and it's it's yeah i mean uh, probably even more stunning to me as I look at the research is, is the phenomenon of ocean acidification because that is uh, I mean what we've done there is so as carbon dioxide goes into the atmosphere from burning fossil fuels some of it as we talked about before goes gets absorbed like a sponge into the ocean and as it gets absorbed there it you know there's a chemical reaction with the water between the carbon dioxide and the water to create carbonic acid and this this carbonic acid is flooding the ocean with acid it's changing its ph so in just these if we go back to the you know 272 years or so since the beginning of the industrial revolution the ocean has become 30% more acidic than it was before we started and this is and it seems like uh, it seems like something that could be uh, could be minor, it could, but in fact, it's incredibly important. This this kind of level of um, this pH that we're now seeing in the in the ocean, across the ocean, is lower than it's been in at least sixty five million years. This is this is an incredibly hard uh, chemistry to change. pH is designed in all living systems so that it's it's very difficult to change. So you know, like in you and me, you and I have a have a pH in our in our arterial blood that it has to be between say 7.35 and 7.45. So we've, or else we die, right? So it's very narrow range of livability. In the ocean, we've already changed the global ocean's pH by more than 0.15 of a unit, so more than the range that your blood and my blood need to be in for us to survive. When I look at all these things, I it's it's the acidification issue that I find the most it's the most difficult to grasp, but it's also the most frightening to me because it's just it's just so hard to change. It just it, it's a represent representation of the incredible amounts of carbon dioxide that we have put into the atmosphere that the ocean has become this acidic in this short period of time um and once and, and the, the issue with the ocean being acidic is that as the ph drops so as the ocean becomes more acidic it means that creatures have a hard time getting at calcium to make their shells so they just they just can't get at um, calcium in a biologically available way to make their shells, to make their reefs, to make their teeth, to make their bones. All of those things are are uh, in danger for calcifiers in the ocean. Uh, 
into, I mean, to the point that even now in some of the colder parts of the ocean that have absorbed more carbon dioxide, creatures are having trouble making their shells, some of them. So this is already a, a phenomenon that is fairly well advanced. And uh, unlike carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, you can't, res- you know, which, and you can pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere through photosynthesizers, say by planting trees, by, you know, that, there's a there's a flux all the time at, um, with carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. But in the ocean, once it becomes, a, once, once you've got that carbon and ion uh, phenomenon going on in the ocean, it just takes thousands of years to, uh, to come back. You know, it's, there's no quick fix for that. Yes, and the idea that messing things up, uh, there's not going to be any quick fix, is is pretty frightening. Well, in the in the little time that remains to us here, I'm just wondering if in your various expeditions uh, for writing that you um, underwent to to write seasick, and and in the time since, is there anything happening that uh, you see some signs of? of hopefulness because certainly there's a lot of dire warnings that come out of this, but um, are we, are we making any progress anywhere? Well, we are absolutely. It's just, it's, it's just a, it's a time of tremendous, tremendous opportunity and challenge. And, and what heartens me so much is that there is so much more information out there, both in the scientific community and in the public, there is a real, um, I mean, I'm not saying it's enough. I'm not saying that we can see clearly, you know, in, in, in our, you know, in our governmental negotiations, even right now going on in Egypt uh, at the COP. But we can we can see that there's not enough being done. That there's not enough action. We're still uh, adding to the carbon load in the atmosphere every single year. Um, but there is more awareness of it. There's there's a determined. Um, vibrant brilliant group of scientists who are who are figuring out who have figured out what we need to do to pull us back from this brink uh some of the most exciting research i ever look at these days is done by this by groups of people who are putting together a blueprint for how to you know, to, for for how to decarbonize the economy effectively, and 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 it's it's incredibly uh, exciting. It's there's just tons of it. It's the the information is there. The blueprints are there. The technology mainly is there. It's just a question of the cultural impulse to make it happen. And I I think if I look back ten years, none of that was in place at that time. So we've got not all of the elements we need to fix this, but we've got a whole bunch of them. And that's what I find so exciting about this particular moment in time. Well, thanks so much, Alana. Um, and thanks for being, uh, describing so eloquently, you know, uh, the big picture with respect to the world's oceans and marine environments. Um, it's been a real pleasure um, talking with you today. So happy that you've kept up your interest and You've got so many interesting things going on, so thank you very much. Well, thanks for having me on the show. Thanks for listening to Edible Ocean Podcast. Tony Winson hosted and did the recruiting for the interviews. I'm Edith Wilson, Tony's audio and production assistant. I also manage our Instagram. Follow us at edibleocean underscore podcast. Follow Professor Tony on Twitter at Industrial Diet. This podcast was made with support from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada.